You know, but authoritarianism is on the march now. I mean, here's something that hits you personally. Um, I think it was 20 years ago, one in five people on the planet lived in a democracy. Today, it's one in two. On this episode of Playtime with W.C. Turk, I speak with legendary political cartoonist from the Chicago Tribune, Scott Stantis. Plus, I feature music from Cosmic Bull's new EP, 27 by 2. Pick up a copy today by visiting cosmicbull.bandcamp.com. I'm W.C. Turk, author, artist, and playwright. There is a way that goes right through The earth through the sun and right through you And all that you need is to believe I'm grabbing hold of the psyche My fingernails if need be Art and politics have a long history. Ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs describe political scandals of the time. Political cartoons were certainly in use in ancient Rome. No doubt, it was send-ups of Nefertiti and Cicero, which inspired my guest today to become a political cartoonist. Scott Stantis is currently the editorial cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune and the creator of the widely syndicated comic strip, Prickly City, which can be found at GoComics.com. He began his career with the Chicago Tribune in September 2009, following the paper's nine-year search to replace the great Jeff McNelly, who passed away in June of 2000. He is also the author of Taking a Stanthus. Uh, Scott, how are you, bud? I am great. I'm great. Like I said, I haven't been invaded and I'm still alive. So COVID <laughs> hasn't gotten me. It's awesome. And so we can we can ink the... Uh, the comment that uh, that it was send-ups of Nefertiti and Cicero by the Egyptians and ancient Romans that inspired you to become a political cartoonist. An absolute lineage, no doubt, no doubt. No, they found, they actually <laughs> found graffiti on the walls of not just uh, archaeological digs in Rome, but also in Pompeii. And it's one yeah. guy's making fun of his friend as a Christian. So um, the, uh, the famous graffiti is... Uh, Aximenus, I believe is his name, yeah. worships his God. And you see a person on a crucifix and his butt's facing us. So it's a butt joke. So yeah, that's where <laughs> pretty much where cartooning starts. So you're in good company. Yes, yes, indeed. I'm actually French. And uh, part of my family came from the Ardèche district of France. And that's uh -huh. where the cave paintings are. Yes. And I have to believe 40,000 years ago, their ancestor of mine, I don't think they're religious. I think they're just odd like butt of elk. <laughs> <laughs> And then they drank a, a sassy Merlot or something. Um, you know, I'm I'm French. working on a book uh, called The History of Light for the Artist, and mm. uh, that that follows basically it follows a photon from the beginning of time through the Renaissance, and then and then makes a a case for surrealism being the ultimate human language. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and and I've been posting uh, as as I'm going along here writing it. I've been posting uh, little bits and snippets 
on the on the podcast. I'll, I'll send you I'll send you a link. You know, I, I'm right in the middle of doing research on on cave paintings and uh, uh, and also Pompeii. I, I cover mostly in in that it really begins, or at least it's the first evidence that we have of of three dimensional rendering. And part of the subtext for the book is I'm following these cultural steps that aided our, our social and, and even biological evolution. That sounds fascinating because yeah. I'm always, I, I am always in thrall of process. You know, I, yeah. I talk to writers, if I'm hanging out with writers, I say, how do you work? And, I, and it's simple, just real bread and butter stuff. Like, how do you work? You know, they, they recently came out with, I don't know if you saw it a few years ago, it was a, almost like a, a bar graph of how each famous composer structured their day. And it's fascinating to me. Most of them, what's the number one takeaway was most of them exercised. They all carved out a day, a, par- a portion of their day to go for a walk usually. And I'm sorry, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. That's but okay. For me, this was interesting. Uh, There's a woman who was in charge of the Newhouse News Service when I worked, and I worked for the Birmingham News for years, which was a Newhouse newspaper. And at yeah. each political convention, every four years, the Democrat and Republican con- convention, these news organizations would have venues. Mm-hmm. And for you kids out there, newspapers are ink on paper. Very quaint. <laughs> anyway, so she loved cartoonists. So she'd actually carve out a, a part of that venue. So a bunch of cartoonists could sit there and do their jobs. And I would just sit there again and just watch different cartoonists draw. It's still, it's still mesmerizing, even though I do it myself and have for over 40 years now. It's still watching someone else go through that process is fascinating. So your book sounds phenomenal. I can't wait to read it. Two responses to that. I, I'm eternally, as, as, as an artist, as a visual artist, I'm eternally fascinated by caricature artists and cartoonists. I, I find that there, is, that there is a sublime truth that comes along with, with that type of, uh, of artistic rendering. The other aspect or the other, the other point I wanted, the other thing about, about composers, I just had a great conversation with Martin Barr from Jethro Tull. And one of the things, here's a 74 year old guy who's still driving a van around the country, by the way, uh, on tour, but he is religious. Yeah. I'm so impressed. Every, every time I speak with the guy, I I'm, I'm more and more impressed with him, but he is very religious about, uh, about jogging and and exercise as a means of it, it's it's his own time, and and as a as an avid biker, I've concocted novels and screenplays on bike rides. There's just a real um, there's a real focus. There's a, a, almost a a meditative uh, focus that happens with. Oh that. no doubt, no doubt. I'm not sure that I create as much when I exercise. Uh, I used to be a runner then age and lack of cartilage caught up with me. (laughs) And so, but I go for long hikes now. And in fact, I'm training to to do a rim to rim in the Grand Canyon. It's the second time I've done it. Wow. But there, yeah, I think you have to have, it's almost a a cleansing. It is a cleansing of the, of the soul of the mind and of the body, of course. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's imperative. So yeah, that's fascinating that you've discovered that with the same, you know, even 21st century people are still needing mm-hmm. to get out and move their bodies in order to exercise their minds. Yeah. Because let's face it, what I do, frankly, my process is sitting down and staring into space for hours <laughs> at a time. Uh-huh. Not a lot of calories being burned there. But you got to be, you have to be a major news junkie. 
Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, even when I even when I say I, I'm not, I I take a step back and you look at, oh, I've read the New York Times and Washington Post, three or four other newspapers, the Chicago Tri- Tribune, of course, and USA Today, yeah. um, and uh, you know, so and then you just get the news alerts all day, and that's. Are we ever going to get used to the Apple Watch? By the way. Because I get news blasts through my Apple Watch. And so I look at it, it buzzes, and I look at it, I go, you know, oh, gee, Putin just invaded uh, New Jersey. Oh, crap. You know, do you remember Google Glass that was supposed to be the next yes. big thing? Did you ever try it? I did. I actually knew one of the deve- one of the developers of, of that ah. and and got to and got to wear one. It was very interesting, but a little frightening because it kind of puts, you know, there, there, there's very little room between what you see and your brain through that little, through that little nerve. And it kind of puts the computer and the internet inside or very close to being inside your brain, which is where they want to be anyways. Oh, no, it's going to end up there eventually. We both know the implant's yeah. coming, right? Yeah. If it's not, if it's not here already with the, uh, with the, with the vaccine. <laughs> As a uh, as a writer, and, and I've got uh, I've got a couple of science fiction stories that I'm I'm playing with. I always think of what's the next thing to come for for bridging the gap between utility and and the internet and being able to access it. And and I keep coming to this virtual this virtual visual that is just called up. Whether whether there's an implant in our in our in our brain or something we want, uh, something we wear that is attuned to uh, a visual, verbal, mechanical cue, but that, you know, that those, those images and screens will appear before us. And I, oh yeah, so, so I'm still waiting for that. Well, let me tell you how it's all going to come out to come down. If you're interested, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Since the um, show is all about tangents. <laughs> I, think, I really do believe this. I actually was having um, uh, drinks with a friend of mine who um, he was the still is the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission to uh, Pluto. Alan Stern, his name, and Alan and I were talking. I just said, here's where I see the future going. There's two ways that it's going to go, but both I think are very possible. I just bought my family just bought an Oculus, the uh, the, the you know the, the 3D gaming mm-hmm. system. But I'm having a ball with it. Love it. Mm-hmm. As that technology gets better, as the graphics get better. Couple that with um, the treadmill, the circular treadmill. You, yeah, can, see where you yeah. can actually pretend that. And you're having 3D printers that can a, 3D print anything you want mm-hmm. at some point. There's mm-hmm. the, the talk they have now that are textile as well as plastics and others, but also yeah. food. So you're living in your you know, one bedroom apartment or a studio apartment. You have your 3D world and your 3D world can be anything you want. Yeah. You can literally, and because we're human beings, First thing we do is have sex with it. <laughs> and so the thing about it, you can have sex with anything that your imagination can come up with. <laughs> Talk about yeah. gender so you're identity. you have that. And so you're going to, that's, that's science fiction, but I don't mm-hmm. think we're that far from it. But the other thing is things like the automation of everything in our lives. Yeah. And when I lived in Chicago, they opened up a uh, Amazon Go which uh-huh. is a convenience store. And it took away the thing that you hate most about going to the convenience store is standing in line and buying your stuff. Uh, this was, you, you literally went in, you grabbed it and you walked out. The, much of the uh, store itself was automated. Uh, you have self-driving trucks. So that's going to be, you know, all the whole, they're building, they're building homes now mm-hmm. in the United States that don't have garages mm-hmm. with the expectation that you're going to have an app and you're going to say, Hey, Siri, get me a car mm-hmm. I need to go mm-hmm. to the pharmacy or mm-hmm. whatever. 
that I, that just that's not that far removed from where we are today and people tend to poo-poo it now getting back to being a cartoonist in the, our process and how we view the world mm-hmm. it's very stark i mean it's, it's it's curious we're seen as almost you know children in grown-up clothing and it's not true we take reality complex ideas political ideas social ideas economic ideas and we distill them down to a kernel of truth as we perceive it mm-hmm. I, i've got to tell you the, one of the most frustrating aspects of my job has always been not being taken seriously, even though every cartoonist, every good cartoonist I know, every good political cartoonist has, has, has learned about these issues in depth, has distilled them in their own mental processes. And it comes out and say, here's the simple truth of this issue. Yeah. And we're like, oh, that's just, that's just so simple. So, and it's like 99 times out of a hundred, we're right. <laughs> but we, we still can't get no respect, man. The fifth horseman, speaking of, uh, mm-hmm. your, your, your latest cartoon, how do you synthesize a fluid event into a single cartoon and remain relevant and timely? What, what is the algorithm there? That's a great question. I, 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 I was just recently going through some of my work with an idea of publishing a, some kind of collection. And there are a lot of cartoons. I got to be honest with you. There's a lot of them. I look and I go, what the hell was I th- what what <laughs> is this about? I have no idea. So yeah, because the news cycle is moving faster and faster, hmm. it's hard to be relevant. That the fifth horseman, I sh- I have Putin joining the four horsemen, and one of them asking who's the who's the new guy hmm. because of what's happening, because of what this guy is, is his actions over the last you know week or so have been so erratic, and the fact that he you know has a whole lot of nuclear weapons and mm-hmm. he's gone uh, moved the DEFCOM or whatever they call it there up a peg that's uh that's disturbing so you know yeah. i think that's going to be relevant i think this guy's this guy <laughs> uh president putin's actions are going to be perceived very badly in history for but also starting the whole authoritarian movement him z in uh, Ch- china now you've got turkey hungary poland and all yeah. the movement it's kind of on the march and democracy's on retreat. You can hear the ADD starting to kick in now. And mm-hmm. what's seemingly this is the age of ADD brother. <laughs> all of the, uh, all of the connective tissue, which doesn't seem to connect at all does come together in my process is to just put it in my head and think, okay, what is this? You're notice that, you know, some people have made the Hitler analogy. I don't think we're there yet. Hitler is Hitler. I think we, we, we tend to jump to that a little quickly. Yeah. My father was a World War II veteran. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, he made it abundantly clear. Hitler was Hitler. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that was, no one else was Hitler. You can compare them to others. So anyway, so I, I'm sorry. Now I'm babbling. And this is, like I said, the ADHD part of my brain. You also mentioned that you have a connection to Lithuania. Yes. And, and you would express that, that you have a certain amount of anxiety with regards to Lithuania and the situation in Ukraine. Well, I'm also French. So, you know, the French, uh, the Lithuanians view the Russians very much like the French view the Germans. They show up every once in a while, (laughs) (laughs) uninvited. (laughs) You know, Lithuania, we, I can remember as I'm old enough now to have, uh, Lithuania was, was a Republic of the former Soviet Union. When they got their independence in 1991, I believe, or 92, went to an event of Lithuanian Americans and everyone was sobbing because we'd never thought we'd see that day. It had been 70 years since mm-hmm. the absorption of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, the Baltic states into the uh, Soviet Union. 
looking at what happens in Ukraine, if, if, if Putin is allowed to get away with this, mentioned apparently one of his ramblings about looking at Finland and Sweden if they join NATO. Yeah. So yeah. he's already threatening other states. Now, would he have the temerity to attack a NATO nation if we do nothing? My sense is he wants to get the band back together. And uh, my grandfather fled with his mother, Lithuania, back in the turn of the 20th century because okay. Russians were, you know, still there. Yeah. Uh, so it, it does become something personal. And that's what and that's when you do your best cartoons, I think, when you're truly angry, when you're truly emotional about an issue. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably true about any art, isn't it? Does does that does that help? Does does that that emotional connection help you or hinder you? Because ostensibly you're still you're still under the umbrella of journalism. Yes. Yeah, I think well, but we're, but we're opinion. So we're, we're okay. different. That's why most opinion sections at newspapers were, were segregated from the newsroom, mm-hmm. just so that they knew that there was always, and there was mostly, almost always literally a wall between the editorial department and the rest of the newspaper. But anger in terms of creating my work, anger is really important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's weird because there are some days, man, I just don't feel angry. I just don't feel like being angry. It takes a lot of energy to be angry, but you have to be in order to be, I think, a good, passionate cartoonist. There has to be a sense of disdain and loathing and cynicism which makes for a happy life <laughs> it, it, it does so so maybe we should back up here a little bit because I, i'm very i'm very very close to to the situation in, also, in ukraine my my wife lived through the siege of sarajevo uh that's where we met we were married two blocks from the front line uh oh. a sniper left his post to come and be at our wedding <laughs> Oh, you're making me misty. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I tried to escape the city that night, was arrested by the Bosnian army, tried again the next night, was arrested by the Serbian army, and then, uh, and, and was ultimately released because I had, I had made, I had made friends and a name for myself on both sides of the line. And, and my wife had, had family on, on both sides of the line as, as well, being from a, from a mixed marriage. So it took me nine months to get her out of, out of Sarajevo. <sighs> I wrote about the rise of nationalism and genocide and ethnic divisionism and, and all of this pogroms in my memoir. Fast forward to today, and I'm doing I'm doing a, a podcast about the arts. There has to be something other than just this song and this piece of art and and this play and blah. There there, there needs imbued within art is is a richer and deeper and more powerful social conscience absolutely which is, which is really at the core of your work yeah that's exactly you just that's the job description is, yeah. is to take these issues and how do they affect you personally like i said this is that's when things get interesting i mean i've had politicians i loathed uh, Rahm Emanuel was met, was mayor of Chicago, and I just loathed the guy. Mm-hmm. Just uh, could not stand him. Uh, and the, thankfully, the feeling was mutual. So <laughs> there's you know that's that's okay. But those were really the best cartoons I drew when I was in Chicago. Was when yeah. I felt strongly about. I mean, as someone who leans conservative now libertarian, because apparently the Republican Party has lost its ever loving mind. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm I, a Democrat, and we we're not far behind. You're not, uh, but I don't. But the thing is, I don't love. <laughs> hard for me to hate somebody and if, yeah, if yeah. i get to that point like barack obama is, is, a, is a red flag for so many conservatives i think for a lot of reasons and many of them unseemly yeah. i never hated the guy i thought yeah. he was mediocre but i just never thought he was uh, someone worthy of loathing donald trump on the other hand 
very much worthy of loathing. And again, you look at my cartoons during the Trump administration and they're, mm-hmm. they're strident. Uh, there's not that level of anger. And the worst thing of all that can possibly happen to someone like me, uh, we had a governor here in Alabama where I worked, as I said, I worked at the Birmingham News for 13 years, a guy named Bob Riley, who I just grew to mm-hmm. really, really respect mm-hmm. and thought, and actually, I mean, how many people in your life have you said, you should run for president? And you meant it. <laughs> Uh, he just obviously declined, and I think he would have been a far better president than George a. George W. Bush. Yeah. But the worst thing that could have happened to me is I like the guy. And so you look at my cartoons, and there's no venom. I mean, I did like two or three cartoons, and they're not very hard. I look back at them recently, mm-hmm. um, and it's... <laughs> It's just like, yeah, I should have hated it because the guy who was there in there before him and even another governor called Bob James. Uh Yes, Bob, you heard it correctly. Uh (laughs) Bob James was an imbecile and I portrayed him that way. And now his son is running for office and his son is the moron doesn't drop far from the tree in this family. (laughs) It's drawing him. All of this is to say, to make the point, you, if you have personal investment, and this is yeah. personal now, the Ukrainian yeah. um, invasion, um, you know, I grew up in the 60s with, in the Cold War, very much in the Cold War culture, mm-hmm. did duck and cover, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. I see what's what potentially is in the mail. And not just me, I don't want my kids growing up in that world. I don't want my grandkids growing up in that kind of a world. You know, but authoritarianism is on the march now. I mean, here's something that hits you personally. Um, I think it was 20 years ago, one in five people on the planet lived in a democracy. Today, it's one in two. Uh, That should scare the shit out of anybody, anybody who believes in democracy and self. And that, by the way, as you said earlier, is a process. Yeah. That, that didn't, it didn't happen overnight. I just wanted, I wanted very briefly to say that I've, I've been in contact with, uh, with an artist in, uh, in Kharkiv, uh, oh, which uh, up, up until just uh, probably, probably yesterday, I think when the power went out and, uh, and, and the city came under, under concerted assault, but Pavlo Makov is an artist who was supposed to show in the Venice uh, Biennale this year and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to be there <laughs> for what's he doing what i mean what how is he what's he doing is he okay first of all and how what's he doing what's what's he doing how's he, he how do you what do you do was, when this happens and you're he life? was okay I, uh so so i asked him if he was if he was being conscripted or if he was volunteering and he said he's 63 years old but the way things are going that might not mean anything all bets are off. You're, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing little old ladies who, who are running up to Russian tanks and berating the soldiers, and and from children to old people, you know, they're they're all together um, in this in this sort of really it's it's very reminiscent not only of the Second World War but also of of things I witnessed in during the siege of Sarajevo of civilians preparing bandages and and hoarding food and and helping neighbors and young kids and old people also becoming becoming involved in in the defense of their city or their community so that's that's very very disturbing well you you've witnessed this first you know firsthand First which hand, is amazing yeah. I, I i happily have not so your friend in Hakeem, what kind of artist is he? And well, he, I mean, this has he's to a, He's, he's a printmaker. He's, he's, he's a fine printmaker. He, he does exemplary um, semi-abstract work. He, he might he might argue with me on that. It's it's beautiful enough to get him or to secure him a spot in, uh, in the Venice Festival. 
wow. or, or, or had. And uh, I, I can only hope because he, he hadn't, he hadn't sent off uh, the artwork, the last long conversation that we had. Um, and I've, I've, I've been reaching out to him and he hasn't been responding, which is making me a little bit nervous. I also went through this with my wife. There were no, there were no phones because they had all either been confiscated or destroyed or there were no phone lines. So this phone lines were very spotty for the nine months that we were, we were separated before I could get her out. There was, there was one, one woman, this wonderful little old lady downstairs whose husband and all of her sons had died on the front line in the Oh, world. good Lord. Brana was her name. Uh, and she had, she had taught partisans during the second world war. Tito's partisans during the second world war. So this lady had lived a life, but, and, and she just loved me to death, but she had the only phone in the apartment building and I managed to get through to her and she went upstairs and, and found, found my wife. Anna came downstairs, uh, hysterical because she had slipped and fallen in the, uh, in the bathroom and they had, they had filled their, their tub with, with water um, in one of those moments where, where water actually was available and she fell through the ice in the bathtub. Oh my God. And so, and so, <laughs> oh and she, she was hysterical apologizing to me that she was going to, uh, that she was going to die of pneumonia and we wouldn't be together. So those are things that, that I think about to what's happening right now across Ukraine. It's heartbreaking. It's terribly heartbreaking. No, I was just going to say, and that's the point of what I do coming back to my process mm-hmm, too, mm-hmm. is put myself in those, you know, we're writers and, and creators. And mm-hmm. I look at exact, you know, I look at if I was there, that's why I was really, um, really interested in your friend in Kharkiv and what, what do you do in that? And so trying to project yourself to, into that situation. Yeah. And that's where, the emotional response comes from obviously fear, anger. You're actually killing, you know, as as Russia lobs missiles into Kiev, you've got, you know, into apartment buildings where people live. Yes. Children live. Yes. People just are doing their thing and hoping they can get through their day. How would I, how would you, sir, how would you react to that? You know the answer to that because you've lived through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, but I'm trying as a writer, as a creator, you try to project yourself into that situation. How would I respond to that? And it would be, you know, obviously anger. At um, I'm 62 now, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure I'd go out in the street, but I'd probably you know roll bandages and do whatever else I could and draw Putin with a really big nose. I guess cartoonist. <laughs> <laughs> that's the skill set's pretty limited as to what we can do. Although you know, uh, but what you do, what you what you do, I think is is critically important, especially in times like this, because you bring you bring a graphic visual, and 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 most people are visual learners. We respond visually. Yes. You bring a graphic and visual commentary. And, and hopefully it's one of those stop you dr- dead in your tracks commentaries like, like the, the five horsemen. Yeah. There are instances where that's, and that's where degree my process, what, you know, how on the angry of meter of one to 10. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, invasion of Ukraine that, that qualifies as a 10. A kind of crooked. I'm also working on a cartoon that the uh, property taxes are due in Chicago, being mailed out and being received by property owners in Cook County, Illinois. Well, that's not a ten. 
Yeah. It's a six. It's a yeah. five because it's the second highest in the country. Uh-huh. We're going to lose our houses because of it. But you have to also have that balance of know to know what what's the best metaphor, what's the best way to portray this. So yeah, with with Putin, yeah, this is. I mean, he could potentially through his actions trigger World War Three. Mm-hmm. And and I have to have to say this as a, as a property owner in in Cook County. And Chicago, does a barrel and suspenders qualify as as a residence? It does. Yes, they can tax it. If you if if they if it if it, if it doesn't move too quick, they can tax it. They really can. Oh my God! It was just having this discussion with people there, and especially people vested in the government of Illinois. I mean, this is uh-huh. I'm sorry, uh-huh. we're gonna <laughs> maybe very uninteresting to anybody besides us. And I say people aren't moving out because of the, because of the taxes. I go the hell they're not. Of course they are. They're moving out of California. California lost population for the first time in the history of of it as a state Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they tax everything that's not nailed down. And it's um, although I I, I will say the the crime is rather disconcerting right now. Is that the word? I'm, I'm trying to be. I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. I, I'm. I'm a little bit thankful, at least for the property taxes. Every time it snows and the streets are plowed, uh, we live. We live pretty close to the border of, of Evanston and Skokie, and and boy, <laughs> the change. The change in unplowed streets is uh, is dramatic and sudden. A friend of mine opened a business down in Beverly, so we lived in. Um, yeah, we yeah. lived on River North, which is the down the Loop area. Because my wife are, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Stupid. Uh, <laughs> we couldn't figure out the metro. So we hopped a bus. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, so we took a bus from River North down to Beverly and we drove through many of the worst areas of the city. Yeah. And it just broke my, it made me, it literally made me angry. I guess that, that motion keeps popping up, doesn't yeah. it? Because yeah. I saw that these people were not getting, and this is one of those t- educational times and that informs your work. So this is salient, yeah. I promise. But seeing what wasn't being taken care of down there, mm-hmm. the streets weren't plowed, the uh, sidewalks weren't shoveled. And I'm just thinking, my God, how do these people stand this? Why do they not stand up and demand that their elected officials, you know, get their, st- at the very least, get the main street plowed? Yeah. And they didn't. And it's just, and that's, that's the corruption of money. And so, and that gets you into a hole. Yeah, indeed. And, and, uh, and, and since we're off on tangents all over the place, it's sort of like a jazz show. We've got a central theme, <laughs> uh, political and editorial cartooning, uh, but we're, we're, we're diving all over the, uh, the melody line here. I, I used to work down in, in Inglewood with foreclosure victims. And, oh. and it was astounding to me that block after block had these blighted properties or boarded up properties one after another. But once you got to the north side of Chicago, or at least the near, the near south side of Chicago, neighbors and neighborhoods would not tolerate seeing that. Yeah. And yet it was, I mean, it was in, in some cases, it was four and five and six and seven or 10 houses on a block, which were, which were boarded up, destroyed, abandoned, falling down. Uh, then I, th- I think they even, they even took the bulldozing him for a while, um, which is, which just shows you the, the astounding disparity and that, but that disparity uh, has been uh, historical in this city. It's always been there. Uh, Ronnie Woo Woo, who's a dear, dear friend, we had him on and he was talking about not being allowed to cross certain certain streets in the city because because of his skin color. Linda Gartz, who uh, who wrote a, uh, a spectacular book, Redlined, 
uh, talks about this very this very thing and and how it was that way for her in the 40s and the 50s uh, and 60s. So this has been this has been one of those processes that you talk about a long time in coming. Yeah, this was, um, in fact, of all people, George W. Bush had one of my favorite lines regarding what we're talking about. He called it the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. It it was strangely, first of all, intelligent coming from, you know, George W. Bush. (laughs) Um, But it was also true. And so and just if you want an example, like you said, drive through the south side of Chicago and these people are being told that they don't deserve the level of services that I was getting living in River North. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where, how we got there from here, but that's, it's one of those, but that's again, one of those issues and one of those instances that inform your worldview and how you approach how you only, yeah. And, and my only, my only pushback on, on the, the George Bush statement is, is that's, that's kind of akin to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But if you, if you don't have bootstraps, how do you do that? I don't know if that was the context. I think his context okay. was something actually more humane, which was he was talking about schools, actually. Yeah, yeah. And saying that we just, you know, we, we expect schools in Inglewood uh, or, or yeah. um, other areas or Austin down there mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the South Side as well. Do we expect them to perform well? So they perform, perform poorly. So they perform poorly. And that's the expectations. Oh, well, you know, those people can't learn. They're just, they don't, blah, blah, blah. And all sorts of the BS that is yeah. absolutely and empirically untrue. Give them the benefit of the doubt. There you go. There you go. I, I also come to it, come to it like this. When, when the bombing began in, in Ukraine, my, my wife became hysterical. She immediately got a call from, from her mother and her sister who, who now live in Zagreb. They too were hysterical. They, they were just beside themselves with this because they all suffer from, from post-traumatic stress. Sure. Sure. And, and that is a physical change to the body, not just a psychological change. That's a physical change to the body. And I, I've worked with, with, uh, and counseled a number of, of veterans. Uh, my brother is a, is a two-time veteran, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. I'm, I'm very close to, to the PTSD issue. The other thing is that I had a meeting with a nonprofit member uh, down in Inglewood, a black gentleman who had, who had been through the prison system, had dropped out of school, but was really trying to do something to help the homeless in Inglewood. He had asked a question and I said, oh, you can just Google it. And he looked at me with a thousand yard stare. Because it wasn't his assumption that it, it wasn't a go-to assumption that that the internet was available to him, as as it isn't for for probably I still think it's 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 probably close to a third of the nation doesn't have regular access to the internet, which yeah. it deep, deeply informs as as you know our electoral process, and and you can you can see that that voting blocks fall fall by where the type of media that they that they have access to whether it's it's old traditional media radio television network television and newspapers or internet and social media so so when i said when i said google it he went what and and it, it yeah. so it, it it becomes it becomes an assumption we have we have a lot of work to do in this country in order to bring up the the people in this country that don't have the assumption of, of technology and, and access to inf- information that, that a lot of us do. 
Yeah, but on the obverse sides of that, remember when the internet was going to make us all smarter? <laughs> yeah, <that>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. information lack of information wasn't the issue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but but you're you know, right. I mean, that uh, that's a checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> Living here in Alabama now, where uh, we moved back to recently, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. it was this large swatches of Alabama that do not have internet. Yeah, and it's stunning to think in you know 2022 that that's still a thing. There's only a couple of dozen editorial cartoonists yeah. in the country now. Does that make you a rarefied commodity or even perhaps a dying species? I hate to say it. I think the latter, and I, it's, it's very intentional on the parts of editors. And I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, now I'm, you know, I can say this with, <laughs> I'm not on a paper, so I can be forthright and say that editors have always hated what we do, what editorial cartoonists do. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I mean, here's a great example. It happened here at the Birmingham News. They decided to, because look, the newspaper business has always been bizarre. It's mm-hmm. been a multi-billion dollar business with absolutely no analytics. Mm-hmm. They've never been self-aware. They never, because their whole thing was they'd show up at the office, push a button and print money. Mm-hmm. I mean, that really was the business model for, for decades. When we show up, when the editorial cartoonists show up, they can't do what we do. What we do is singular and unique. That's not just drawing, but writing Mm-hmm. analysis, all of those tools that it takes to be that. And they always resented it. And the reason I brought up the focus group, they're looking at different sections of the paper and the editorial cartoon was one of the most popular, was by far and away. I mean, by, by light years, yeah. the most popular thing on the editorial page. You know what they did? They dropped the question. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable, but that's what they did. And it's, it's one of those, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. You know, the uh, that old chestnut. This is why I, I point to you, Scott Stantis, and uh, and a lot of your contemporaries, as as a commodity, as a rarefied commodity. You had a cartoon about COVID and the schools, in which you rightly placed the children as the victim and the center of that adult conversation. It's a kid with it's a kid who's hanging uh, hanging between two conversations. His arms are stretched out to infinity. On one side is open the schools and the other side is is close the schools. Yeah. Vax, don't vax, which was a ridiculous discussion. But I listen to a lot of talk radio, both liberal and conservative. And that is a precise, concise point that I have not heard anywhere, despite all the times I've screamed it at my radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, it, again, you have to look at who's, who's actually getting hurt in all of this. And with the school system, with the closures and so on, we've lost a year and a half, if not more mm-hmm. in our schools. You've just touched on, this is a good example of my thinking process, if I may. Yes. As you talk about the schools and who's getting hurt. I made a proposal a year ago saying, listen, we're screwed. I mean, the school we've lost, the, the kids have lost a year of socialization, not mm-hmm. just learning because the distance learning thing was a, was a dismal failure. Yeah. Yeah. So why not just hold this, the president or the secretary of education, whoever has the authority to do that say, or through money, through funding, whatever, we're going to hold every kid in America back one year. No one else proposed that. No one else was really mentioning this. Uh, it has become more mentioned more and more as teachers are going back into the classroom and realize, holy cow, these kids are out of control, and they are so far behind what they're where they should be. Particularly younger kids like who miss kindergarten, first grade, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the earlier, more developmental uh, ages. I'm the only one who's standing up there saying we need to do this, and I can't tell you, uh, getting screamed at all the time for. <laughs> 
for being the person who says in the cartoon you mentioned the stretching the kid between the two extremes mm-hmm. if you say both both sides are really needs to need to just calm down and come together yeah. both sides will come at you mm-hmm. and say you are full of crap you are a horrible person you are i mean some of the comments <laughs> are just unbelievable but there's no sense in this country right now of compromise certainly compromise is a dirty word yeah now we're going to we're entering into a midterm election where we now have gerrymandered states which means we're going to have even more radical primary winners mm-hmm. which means we're going to have crazier people in the house and the congress and the senate not to mention the local legislatures mm-hmm. this is a really weird frightening time for anyone who is a critical thinker you know and, and i because i can sit here and say my you know listen dude if i didn't like liberals i wouldn't be married let alone have zero friends, <laughs> but they, you know, they tolerate me and <laughs> their token conservative friend. It's sweet. But my point is, uh, yeah, I have a problem with, and this is part of my process is that I tend to look at the entire issue holistically here. What's the whole, what's the whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now, and then you take out and that at that point, once you've done that and you have that entire throbbing mound of stuff in front of you, you can say, okay, this is good. This is good. This is good. Mm-hmm. This is good. And it's not all going to be what you believe in. It's not all going to be tax cuts and deregulation. And I'm willing to admit that. Well, there's three of us left in the country who are willing to do that, apparently. <laughs> are, are you a lightning rod in our, in our partisan environment? And, and uh, I'll go back to, uh, I'll go back to the, to the school uh, COVID cartoon in which we are so ultra sensitive now to to anything that challenges our our beliefs, our manufactured, our propagandized, our our accepted beliefs. And I, I I've had this conversation before. I, I posted I posted an article in which I went went after every single I I, I was I was looking up. The, <laughs> The different, different, different political ideologies in order not to miss anybody and, and went after them all. Everybody picked out their, their, their pet argument and, and came after me for it. We have, and that's where the internet, and I was joking earlier, but I'm not joking on this. Uh, We all have our own narrative, right? We all, and, you know, and we want to adhere to it because first of all, it's intellectually lazy. To do, yeah. you don't have to worry. You know, listen. Hey, you know, if you're a if you're you know, yeah, a, a yeah. corporate Democrat, you read the New York Times, they'll tell you what to think. Mm-hmm. You're a conservative, you know, uh, you, you read the New York Times or you, I mean, the uh, Wall Street Journal, or you look mm-hmm. at Fox News and so on, mm-hmm. and it confirms your narrative. And that's where the danger of the internet is. If you don't spread out your net very yeah, far, yeah. you're just looking something to confirm, confirm, and conform to your narrative. And that's where someone like me becomes a lightning rod because I try to. Mm-hmm. I'm not always successful. I'll be the first to admit it. But you try to have some critical thought behind what you believe and say, you know, because I'm I'm a cynic. I'm I'm truly mm-hmm. truly a cynic. And um, my wife desc- describes me as the most optimistic cynic she knows. Which which I think has got to be the, the the most rational political yeah. ideology of our day. Well, if you're cynical, you're never you're rarely proven wrong. <laughs> That's the other thing is like uh-huh. oh, they're, they're lying to me. They're going to screw it up. This isn't going to work. And 99 times out of 100, it doesn't. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it's 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 not a bad way to go through life. It is if you think that oh, life is dour and dark and gr- gritty and horrible. Because I don't. But I do think that human beings are self-interested and they're going to do the mm-hmm. self-interested thing. And that comes back to believing in your own narrative. 
mm-hmm. and confirming your own narrative. And so you get things like. Uh, you so you're know, not a glass half empty guy. You're a glass half full guy, but it's filled with crap. Yes, it's just bubbling. <laughs> filled with humans. Humans are the one are the, are the one part of this whole equation that really screw things up. <laughs> you know, the, the election of 2016. Yeah. You know, I, I always told my kids when they were disappointed by something in the culture. Mm-hmm. I tell them, I'd say, you know, 96% of people are stupid. And I didn't know that number was low, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And I don't mean stupid in the sense that they, they're developmentally, any kind of problem with them. It's, it's easier to be stupid. It's mm-hmm. easier to say to watch Fox News or MSNBC or whatever your media choice is yeah. and say, yeah, that's what I believe. That's right. Everything else is wrong. It's just easy. And now we've created a culture where, oh gosh, what, what do they say? Um, the uh, Brandon thing. The um, well, Let's go Brandon. Let's go Brandon is the height of urbanity for 60% of the people in the country. I'm going, no, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it is just, and so anyway, you can tell by my voice, I'm getting a speaking, excited. speaking, speaking of memes. The, the question that keeps coming up in, in my mind is what is the difference between political and editorial cartooning and a meme? That's an excellent question. I think that's part of what's happened to editorial cartooning. Mm-hmm. Um, political and editorial cartooning are the same thing. I mean, it's just a different name for the same thing. Uh, but memes, people figured out what we were doing. Late night, late night talk shows figured out what we were doing. We, yeah. the uh, political cartooning fraternity, were doing, and they copied it. They saw the the popularity of it, mm-hmm. and so yeah, there is no there is no difference between a meme and an editorial cartoon. It can be just as effective. Sometimes it's more so because it gets disseminated further. So then why the backlash by editors and newspapers against political cartooning? Again, because they don't like being called. They don't like rocking the boat and they don't, unless it's them rocking the boat, if that makes sense. If it's a columnist, they're fine with that. But editorial cartooning, they just have a hell of a time with and they always have. I was speaking to a group of feature editors. I do a comic strip called Prickly City. Yep. And it's a political strip. So I was there on a panel with Burke Brethet, who did uh, Bloom County, and with Stefan Pastis, who does Pearls Before Swine. Mm-hmm. And we we're talking to this group of features editors. And dude, I got to tell you, they were the number one concern they had is that they'd get calls. Wow. I'm like, and so the three of us are sitting there going, no, 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 you don't understand. That's great. That means you're engaging your audience and they care about your product. This is a yeah. good thing. Yeah. And they would just, and then they just stared at us. You know, the same look you get when you blow in your dog's face. <laughs> it's the exact same look. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They're like, oh, huh? there's a fine line between political cartooning and propaganda, or or is there? Is one person's send up another person's, I, I, I guess, attack? And, and where is that line? That's a great question. I don't know where that line is. I mean, sometimes here, let me be self-revelatory and mm-hmm. f- flagellate myself a little, mm-hmm. a little bit and say that during the buildup to the Iraq war in the early 2000s, I was very much in favor of it and yeah. realized later that, I mean, I was just a propagandist for the government and for George W. Bush's and his administration's tilt towards a, what turned out to be a very, very, very stupid war. And I'm ashamed. Which, actually, I'm which ashamed. is which is coming back to haunt us right now, by the way, with the Ukraine issue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you? I mean, in what way do you? Are you saying? And in, in as much as people are using it to say they're they're going after our moral authority in decrying the injustice of invading a sovereign nation. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I think there's something to be said for that. I wrote a cartoon on the 10 year anniversary of the invasion, just saying, you know, how wrong I was. Even then, I mean, what's fascinating to me is even though I said, listen, I'm sorry, I screwed up. That was a, that was such a stupid thing to do. And it became a propagandist, something I swore I would never become, which of course I did. But even then still got people were like, well, where were you 10 years ago? I'm going, I just told you. <laughs> but let me, so, so let me ask you this. Was that quote unquote propaganda, was that based on malice? Were you driving a narrative that you knew was false or, no. or did you believe that what you were that you, what you were rendering was was the truth. I I believed at the time what I was rendering was the truth. There you go. It's hard to say. Well, I mean, what is propaganda? I mean, so, you know, my mind is it's just uh, promoting a political stance, regardless. Okay. Uh, like you said, you know, and there's some cartoonists who still do this. You know, this is mm -hmm. how we're supposed to believe. I mean, you look at there's some conservative cartoonists who just adhered to Trump, even though in private conversations you knew they loathed the guy. Mm -hmm. but their, their public face, the public cartoons were very much in favor. The same held true for, I guess, uh, Bill Clinton throughout the impeachment and, and all that, all that rigmarole. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase. <laughs> sorry. Be older, Scott. Uh, <laughs> so is there a difference? I think there is. I mean, most editorial cartooning has always been individuals uh, and indiv indiv individualistic in the individual's point of view. Uh, the, I've always viewed my job as that if like if I, to put it in a context an editor can, can understand, uh, I would consider myself more of a columnist, uh, an individual voice. And that's how, when I was hired at the Tribune, that's what we agreed to. Uh, mm -hmm. That was that was a deal breaker if they didn't. Okay. Okay. Back in, uh, we're, we're moving kind of quickly here because there's a lot of stuff I want to cover with you and I don't think we'll get, get to all of it. No, no, you've, you've, you've got an impressive career and, and, and an equally impressive resume. And, and I, I want to make sure that pe people understand as much about you and your work as, as, as we can, we can fit in here in, in a relatively short amount of time. Back in 2015, you spoke with a couple of friends of mine, Hannah Stanley, and uh, and Roger Badesh uh, on WGN. I worked with Hannah at huh. WCGO over here, and uh, and Roger was uh, was a guest on our on our show, and and we're still we're still friends. But you spoke about the Charlie Hebdo uh, yeah. Mohammed cartoon, which elicited uh, for people who have very short attention spans, a massacre in their Paris offices. In solidarity with over freedom of expression, I published that cover um, with, with an expl explanation of why. Um, and I, I've, got, I've got lots of Muslim friends. I've got, I've got Muslims in my family on my wife's side. And it wasn't an attack on Islam, looking back now six years, what have we learned or have we learned anything from Charlie Hebdo? And is that type of editorial cartooning gratuitous, insensitive, cruel, necessary? I'd say it's all of the above. Okay. I really would. I would say that cartooning is supposed to at its best give an ethereal or emotional response. Mm -hmm. And that's what those, those, covers were okay let's be clear uh they were juvenile but that charlie Hebdo is juvenile that's its whole point yes yeah, <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, yeah. to be juvenile it's also to incite and mm -hmm. it certainly did obviously did that in a very very ugly way i pushed very hard 
for the American, for my friends in the American newspaper business to reprint the, um, the, 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 oh God, help me with the name of it. There was a Dutch newspaper, uh, Danish newspaper, and they put, and it was do a drawing of, of Mohammed. Yes. And it was, one of them was the turban. His turban has become a, a bomb. Right. Another one in a series of them. And they were, they weren't very good cartoons, quite frankly, but the, the, the response that they elicited was definitely, I mean, the cartoonist today is still being attacked. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, find, hey, he has to have a safe room in his home and was had, had an intruder recently. I guess my point is that I was trying to push people not to be anti-Muslim, which I'm not. Right. Um, not, but just to say we have freedom of speech. Nobody in the United States, mm-hmm. there's not one newspaper that ran those cartoons. Not one. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking if we all ran them, I mean, they can't kill us all. Yeah. So, you know. So would you agree with this statement that creating new cartoons on top of on top of the Charlie Hebdo um, cartoon would have been gratuitous, but reprinting the the Charlie Hebdo cartoon with the addendum of we're doing this because we believe in freedom of speech. This is not against our Islamic friends and neighbors. Uh, I'd love your love your reaction. Well, that's the no, you you did absolutely the right thing and you did it in absolutely the right way. Uh, You said it that first of all, it's a news story. Yeah. If there was a, you know, a a plane crash in Akron, Ohio, we'd have pictures of it. If there was a, you know, a a political speech by Trump in Sacramento, we'd have photographs of it. You can't tell a story. Without, I actually picked someone wrote a book about the, the 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 Danish cartoons and didn't run the Danish cartoons. I mean, that to me is just nuts. I mean, that's yeah, just like yeah. that's, and it plays into kind of our the you know the complaints against woke culture and cancel yeah. culture and, and it does definitely kind of it kind of preceded all of that. I thought you, I think you absolutely did the right thing and say here's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And when you see the actual cover, it seems pretty harmless, really. Yeah. And, and I suppose we need to take that into context at, at a time when everybody's feathers were up. Everybody was in this super sensitive Islamic versus West narrative. And so anything the West did that Muslims perceived as anti-Islam, they were going to run with it. And, and vice versa, anything, anything that, that Muslims did, any Muslim, there are, there are a billion or a billion and a half Muslims we're, we're talking about, a very, very small fringe of, of extremists. But, but any, anything that even those extremists did was blown way out of proportion in the West, where, where you, had, you, had, you had states in the United States that were passing, passing laws against Sharia law. Yeah, well, like that was an issue here. I mean, yeah, I think Alabama was one of them. Yeah, and I get the sensitivity. I could see where, and I think that's where, frankly, the the Bush administration did do a good job was keeping. Mm-hmm. You know, this could have turned very ugly and had internment camps, and we could have gotten like you know really off the rails on this, and we didn't. Yeah, so that's yeah. great. But I can see where the the Muslim world was a little concerned, but also just this hypersensitivity to. You know, my God's pretty strong. I'm a Catholic. We've been around for a while. Um, yeah. And the same holds true for Islam. You're, you know, yeah. your God's pretty strong. They, they, you know, the cartoons are <laughs> not going to hurt them. Being a Catholic and doing anti-Catholic cartoons, anti-Catholic church, especially how they handle the uh, pedophile scandal, which mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. still goes on. Let me ask you, but I, we, you didn't say, what kind of reaction did you get when you posted it? Very good reaction. So I, like I said, I have, I have Muslim friends and family and they were in full support. They know, they also, they also know who I am. They know, they know how I feel about, 
my my wife's younger brother was was one year old during the war. Took his first steps when I was there. His father, who wasn't married to my mother-in-law at the time, my mother-in-law, who is Croatian Catholic, I'm Catholic. Uh, my wife is Catholic. Her father is Serbian Orthodox. But Tono's father was was a Muslim gunrunner and and fell on on the bad side of the the Mujahideen in Bosnia. Ooh. And and had to disappear. So he's never been a part of of Tono's life. Tono, as as a young as a young man, teenager, began to have questions about about his Islamic heritage. About the same time, his name is Sanyin Musa. You can you can Google him on the internet. Although I'll confess, it's a little hard to Google him without the internet. Uh, I actually wrote a novel based upon him. He was he was involved with. He became very radicalized, and I guess you could say that he was involved with um, some very very bad people. I ended up getting a phone call from the Central Intelligence Agency. Oh my God! The day after 9/11, asking about him. I met Sanyin through my wife and her family right after the death of his parents, in which they were uh, a little old couple, were bracketed by Serbian mortar fire and were only identified by the clothing and pieces of them in the trees, which still was not enough to radicalize him. Oh geez. Sanin was also he was he he was also this this ladies man, basketball player. He could have gone pro had had the war not happened. His arm was injured so he couldn't play he couldn't play basketball. He ended up on the front line where they they had to put they had to put a Bosnian unit and this was his unit between the Mujahideen, Afghans, Yemenis, Saudis and and the Iranian um the, the Iranian contingency, Iranian volunteers, so that they would, because the two, the, the, the two different Muslim sides would, would fight each other more than they would the Serbs, Sunni and Shia. So, so that all, that all radicalizing Sanyi, not to mention the fact that, that former Serbian Orthodox and in some, in some cases, Croatian Catholic nationalists had tried to had tried to wipe him out and wipe out his family based upon their their very loose affiliation to Islam. So I bought a, a Quran, a beautiful leather-bound Quran, because he was becoming increasingly more volatile with my with my mother-in-law, and I was more and more concerned. I went there, I, I had a grenade, and I was going to do one of two things. I was either going to make make friends with with uh, with Sanin and ratchet that situation down, or I was going to put a grenade through his window. <laughs> one of the two ways. One of the two ways. I was not going to leave a really awful situation to chance with my family. Luckily, it turned out. It turned out for the better. So I I I knew. I I, I interviewed him. I knew his life story. I had pictures of him. All of this stuff. So I get a call from the CIA the day after um, September 11th. I was working out at, o at O'Hare uh, at the time for an airline. And <laughs> I got the call and went, uh, no, and hung up on him and then <laughs> called the CIA, uh, who, who has, by the way, a switchboard. Uh, and and and, <laughs> and asked for asked for the Balkan desk and and that's who you know that's who it. I, I learned the Quran in an honest way 
not in a propagandistic way to, to tell him this is what's wrong with Islam and this is why you should choose your mom's Catholicism. I wanted him when he got when he got to the proper age to be able to make a real world honest decision based upon which of those two songs spoke to him the best. So that was my background with with Islam. So people knew who I was. The, the Muslim part of the family knew what I was about. They also knew that I was an artist and that above all, censorship was, was not something I would ever tolerate and, and that I would always stand on the side of artistic non-censorship or artistic freedom. Uh, long, long story short. No, you just, and you just touched on another vital part of, um, and it's a missing part because there's always been this disconnect and that's the intent of the artist. I can't tell you how many times in the last 10 years, more than in the thirties that by a factor of 10, uh, the 30 years that preceded it, people told me, I knew what you I know what you meant. Mm-hmm. Because they're called, I read about a cartoon and said, why did you draw it like this? And the example I used in my, my stump, my regular speeches, when I speak to groups is I did a draw, draw Rama manual mm-hmm. step-by-step. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it, how many of your listeners remember what Ram looks like. He's now an ambassador in Japan, which is weird, but we won't, but that's a different issue <laughs> podcast on the day he was sworn in. I did a step-by-step. Here's how you draw Ram. He said, if you really want to think about it here, he's a, he's a cross between ET in the Grinch who stole Christmas. Yes. He has that kind of smirk and the, the thick hooded eyes. Mm-hmm. I got a woman the next day called me was furious absolutely furious. This is how dare have you always, she started the conversation by saying, have you always been anti-Semitic? I want oh yeah. You hear the look on your face right now. It's, it's like, what? And that was what I said. Uh, I went, what? And you compared him to the Grinch who stole Christmas and ET. I go, yeah, just so visually, that's what he looks like. Mm-hmm. So our first Jewish mayor, you're comparing to two, two creations of, by Jews. And I went, Wow, you that... are, you thought about this a lot more than I did. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, ET was uh, Spielberg and right. uh, Dr. Seuss. Yeah, was, yeah, you know, and and that's one of those instances where they they were looking for offense. They found it. Mm-hmm. They could in their narrative they could qualify it, tying all these knots up. We've just been tying the last few <laughs> minutes, and decided that I was anti-Semitic because I had done this. And I swear to God, it was not, it was not, certainly wow. not intentional by any stretch. Yeah. When you use metaphor, it can, which I use a lot, people get confused and they, they, they read into it what they want to read into it. Sometimes in a very painful way, intent of your art, what is the intent? And they can ask you and, or they can ask me and I can mm-hmm. tell them, here's my intent. Where things have gotten weird in the last decade is I can tell them my intent. And they said, no, that wasn't it. Thank you. Okay. So I'm lying. (laughs) (laughs) Or or self-delusional. Yeah, no, it's, it's the, and that's weird to have that conversation at that point. I I learned over a career that you have to cut it off then because once they've gotten to the point and that's where as a culture, we're really, we're really screwed. And that's because we don't just disagree with each other on politics. We, we disagree with what their, our intent is. We disagree with their motives. Well, let me, let me, so let me follow that thread a little bit. Um, the Tyshawn Lee cartoon that you did, the young child who was murdered in Chicago um, during Rahm Emanuel's uh, tenure as mayor yeah. received a lot of attention uh, and reaction. Race in this country is, is 
a political minefield. I, I, I initially I had touchstone. I, I'm going to go with minefield because there's almost <laughs> no way you, you're no. able to get through this without without blowing yourself up at least a little bit. Right. Um, talk about the reaction to that cartoon and and your intention and maybe has in in light of George Floyd and everything that's transpired since then has any of that changed for you or has it just locked in your view on on that that issue? Well, I've always, and it sounds like when I was raised by Gandhi, I wasn't. I was raised by an Eisenhower Republican who uh-huh, but uh-huh. told me that, um, you know, when I came home in that first Which grade, these days is pretty close. <laughs> what? What's that? To Gandhi. Yeah, yeah pretty much nowadays by comparison. <laughs> um, but I came home and I was spouting some limerick that had a, used the N-word in it. I had no idea what it meant. I got spanked yeah, yeah. because of that and was yeah. told that we don't use that language in our house. My father... I mentioned earlier was a World War II veteran. He was an infantryman, one of the first soldiers into Orderdrift concentration camp. Wow. Wow. Um, and so I don't know if you remember, if you're, you don't look like you're young enough to remember the miniseries Holocaust. It was the first I, American I drama- dramatization of that. Of the, I absolutely do. Yeah. Of the Holocaust. And my dad was general manager of the CBS station in Madison, Wisconsin at the okay. time when it aired. And he insisted that anyone who called complaining about the Holocaust thing to forward them to him. <laughs> I can't even imagine my dad talking to these people and because um, yeah. my dad knew three words and two of them were the F word. <laughs> and I have to, exp- I'm going to sound like such a goofball more so than usual here, but to, sh- to explain the, can you describe the cartoon to me? Because I was, I draw hundreds of these a year. I'm trying to remember that specific one. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't have the image. I don't think I have the image in front. No, I don't. How did it change? Here's how it changed me. I mean, the thing, the, the, the shooting in, in Ferguson, for instance, uh, we happened to have my daughter-in-law was presenting. She's a professor, uh, I mean, a, a doctor of uh, anthropology, and she was presenting a paper in St. Louis. So we went down there. I had dinner with a friend of mine from St. Louis. I'll make this call bullet point so it'll go mm-hmm, faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was t- describing to me in Ferguson why the black community, just the community in general, hated the cops because what happened in a very short period of time, a lot of little cities around St. Louis became independent and they were like two, three, four square miles, had no tax base. How do you, how do you monetize things? You, you mm-hmm. ticket them. And so the people in Ferguson were ticketed constantly, jaywalk, mm-hmm. every minor infraction you got a yeah. ticket because yeah. they had to, raise, had to raise revenues. That's where that anger came from. So mm-hmm. going there and actually deciding to look at why you know, I'm a cis man, white male, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I'm work very hard at trying to understand other people, persons, because I've been lucky, been mm-hmm. extraordinarily lucky in this culture mm-hmm. that opens the doors. Even the thing, like I just mentioned a few minutes ago about the mayor's race in Birmingham, it opens your, it opens your mind. If you're willing to open your intellect to different ideas and have your conventional paradigm challenged, well, that's, that's, that to me is the way you go through life. Because no one is right. No one is wrong. You know, it's, if you go through life like that, you're going to be curious. And hopefully, uh, and if you're, a, you're a commentator, hopefully a good commentator. Boy, we, we, could, we could talk for hours. There's, there's so much I need to ask you, but we're, we're going to have to cut things. I have to ask you this from an artistic standpoint. I speak with a lot of musicians in light of the Peter Jackson uh, Get Back documentary about the Beatles where they're they're improving lyrics 
and <laughs> they're they're beginning they might be, be beginning with a musical bridge or a musical riff yeah. a word phrase or a sound and then and then they they pull all that together rock and contemporary musicians are they're they're always looking to try to uh, to build in the lyrics to music, and that means compromising sometimes. I see your work very much in that same light. Do you begin with with an idea, a word, an image? How does how does a cartoon come together for you? Yes, <laughs> and that's exactly what I thought you would say. Of uh, forty years <laughs> of doing this, I've asked I've been asked where do you come with your ideas, and for forty years, I cannot come up with a pithy short answer yeah. it's always just jeff mcnelly who you said succeeded at the uh, yeah. chicago tribune had a great line he says you stare at a blank piece of paper until beads of blood appear on your forehead there's something to be said for that's kind of it yeah. um yeah. you sit there and for me you, you earlier you mentioned being a glutton for uh devouring news that's what i do first yeah, yeah. And then I'll say, okay, what's the, for me, it's a twofold system. I have first one and it's just as difficult as figuring out what I'm going, what issue or what, what happened that day. What am I going to comment on? You sort of get one, one, you sort of get one shot. Yeah. And so you have to figure out, okay, I'm like I said, I mentioned the um, uh, I'm working in right now one on for, for mayor uh, Lightfoot. Uh Um, And so, okay. What is that one? Obviously, Ukraine, that's the issue that's sucking the air out of the room for any kind of commentary. But I, I, I kind of want to get back to drawing about Chicago issues. Or I'm, I'm sorry, about Cook County uh, property taxes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, then, and then once I choose that, then it becomes a little easier in that how mad am I? And for property taxes, how, what's the best way to illustrate a property tax? Um, there, is it under the house? Is it over the house? Is it a sort of Damocles holding, uh, uh, you know, uh, being held over the house? Is it something? I'm thinking something in the mailbox. Actually, I'm thinking like a bomb or some horrible little creature, and the family looking out from behind the blinds, going, "Oh my God, the property tax bills here." Um, so that's kind of where I'm going and where that will end up. I don't, you know, it's a, it's 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 an adventure every day, but eventually you get to that point where you know, a deadline is a great, it's a great motivator. Because of, okay, what about this? What about that? How about if I draw this one? Or I can render that, or I can do this. Holy crap, it's, I got 20 minutes. Okay, <laughs> the first idea was the best. Let's go with that. <laughs> you, you grew up in, in San Diego. I did. Yeah. Um, but- a, a lot of great people grew up in San Diego. My, my former co host uh, on the radio show, Carrie Kendall, who was Miss September 1990 for Playboy. Uh, huh. is, uh, is, is from, from San Diego as, as well. Uh, and I've got, uh, I've got a number of friends in, in the city here in, uh, in theater who, uh, who cut their teeth in. Isn't in that San weird? San Diego is a hotbed of theater. It is. You yeah, would never really think is. someplace like yeah. that would be, but yeah, it always has been great place to grow up. I mean, it was idyllic. And then, then, uh, 11 years old, we moved to Madison, Wisconsin, which is different. <laughs> And also, a little, a little, almost, almost died there because I was my, my mom and I, my mom, who was a native of Los Angeles, we'd never lived in any place cold. And that yeah. day, the high was going to be 28. Wow. And my mom and I look at each other and go, well, that's sweater weather. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so if it wasn't for the kindness of a long forgotten woman who lent me her coat at the, at the, at the bus stop, Holy cow. Uh, God knows what would have, what we would have missed. Wow. Wow. Uh, where, where did you go to school? 
Uh, I'm sorry. I laugh at that because when I talk to high schools, especially the teachers ask that and I have to laugh because I was actually kicked out of Long Beach State University. Oh, good man. Good man. Yeah. Yeah. But I fell in love with cartooning. Um, it's interesting. I fell in love with cartooning in my wife the same month. Um, so, so which, which upbringing, which locale informs your, your, your political or your social ooh. outlook, San Diego or, or uh, Wisconsin or yes. Alabama or Alabama. Um, I, because I'm a cynical and because I'm such a cynic and because I don't like people, uh, I don't, especially, especially politicians, uh-huh. uh, growing, I went to junior high and high school in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. And, um, that is, you know, everyone says, Oh, that must have been great. That was such a liberal city. I go, no, it's an only a liberal city. Mm-hmm. That is anyone who is conservative was ostracized and marginalized. And so it made me very cynical towards politics and politicians. Boy, what, that's a great question. One I've never really considered, which informs me most. I left California at 10 and we moved back after high school. So I, and that's where I met my because wife. Because San Diego has, has a conservative core to it, but it's also, it's also in, in the heart of, uh, of, of liberal quote unquote California. But then the, but then Madison has this, this practicality of outlook to it, or Wisconsin has maybe has kind of a kind of a practical, even conservative bent that's juxtaposed by the more liberal aspect or more liberal out, outlook of the University of Wisconsin. And then Alabama, if you're 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 sort of living in a geographic relic of of the the Civil War conversation about about race and state yes. rights and identity and all that. I'd say, you know, the longest I ever lived in any place, I moved around a lot. My career has taken me to many different newspapers around the yeah. country. Yeah. Uh, worked in California, worked in Arizona, worked in Michigan, worked here in Alabama, worked obviously in Illinois. Yeah. Um, and you take something away from all of those. Uh, I'd say Birmingham informed me a lot because I came to a city, as I said, which was uh, over 75% African-American uh-huh. when I started on the job. And they weren't used to being a cartoonist going after the elected officials. The elected officials happened to be African-American. They just yeah. happened. That was what happened. And so as I cartooned about them, their initial response was, oh, who's who's this racist ass who's making fun of <laughs> And then they realized I was also making fun of Fob James, who was uh-huh. the governor and other. And so I was an equal opportunity tormentor. And I had the opportunity in an audience that I came to understand that fairly quickly. But that's just a great question. I think really what influenced my politics and my art was my family. <clears throat> Pardon me, mostly my father. Mm-hmm. He was a very creative uh, television executive. He won, won a few Emmys. My mother was a concert pianist and singer. And so we always had classical music playing in the house. And um, that was in music, just thinking about going to movies and we'd walk out. I mean, things like my father would insist that we sit through the credits says those people worked hard we deserve yes, they do. their names mm-hmm. and they do shout out to <laughs> carolyn Prezan. yes exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> and so and walking out of the theater is always well what did you think of the cinematographer what did you think of that the, the choice of a tight shot versus a you know a different shot for that wow. scene so that's how i grew up yeah and um so that his politics were like i said fairly conservative i inherited those and i also had a great aunt who mm-hmm. was um she taught figure drawing at the art Institute in Chicago for 40 years. Okay. So art was always a part of the, of our lives and drawing and create and just being, just basically being creative. And my brothers were creative. But just uh, on the surface, it sounds like your dad sort of imbued you with, um, with, a uh, with a critical eye. 
Yes. Which yeah. I think is is very important for, for a political cartoonist. And he was also a college dropout. So maybe, yeah, the, um, <laughs> the dropout doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, <laughs> but also just to be voraciously curious, voraciously uh, a voracious reader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my father was, I am, uh, my wife is, uh, and just constantly being, and just constantly being curious about everything, about everything. And yeah. that's a great way to, you know, obviously it's a way, I, but I would encourage anyone, this, the world is an interesting place and people are fascinating. It's a key to life. Um, yeah. Last, last question I have for you um, sure. is as someone who relies, even defines print media, uh, how accurate are the doomsayers who for the last century and a half have heralded the imminent uh, demise of the newspaper? The newspaper, I think, is going to, it's going away. We have vast swatches in the United States, particularly of news yeah. deserts now. Yeah. And they're, they're more and more added every week. We've lost, I think, 1,700, 1,900 newspapers over the last decade. I think when, you know, I, I always hearken back to uh, Bill Gates was introducing Windows 98. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a long time ago, but apparently if you were the richest man on the planet, you had to talk like Kermit the frog. So here's my imitation of Bill Gates going. <laughs> and so if you want to, if you want to, you can pick just the news you want to read. I'm going, that is the worst idea I have ever heard. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's what's, that's what has come to, 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 to fruition. Uh, we, we, we now have, uh, you know, people read just what, and we come back to what we were talking about earlier, that just that confirms their narrative. Do you see, because because newspapers <laughs> are moving online, are you able, to, as an editorial cartoonist, are you able to make that transfer as successfully? And, and, and I say that because a political cartoon is, is a snap judgment. You're looking at it, you, and, and you're, you're, brilliant at what you do in that you know immediately the message behind uh, behind what you're trying to convey. And most people who read articles online are looking at the headline, maybe the first paragraph. Americans read 11 minutes a day now. Yeah. Ele- read 11 minutes a day. That, that includes yeah. tweets, texts, yeah. you know, everything. We're not a reedy, reedy culture. And that really shallows out the the, the pool of metaphors I can draw from. Mm-hmm. But as far as, as, as editorial cartooning, editorial cartooning, because you mentioned at the top of the show, editorial cartooning is going to be around forever. We are like toe fungus. There's no getting rid of us. We just, we're just perennial. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now monetizing it, that's where things get tricky. And that's where it, mm-hmm. you know, you've lost so many great editorial cartoonists because the papers are no longer on staff. The internet pre- presents a challenge, but also presents an opportunity. Obviously, and but, I've by the way, I've I've seen I've seen um, political car- the New Yorker's been doing it where they're they're posting a weekly cartoon or a daily cartoon. Yeah, the Week magazine has a has a gallery. It runs it updates yeah. Yeah. several times a day yeah. because people, especially especially on the uh, on a smartphone, it's a perfect conduit. It's a pr- it's the perfect medium for that. It's yeah. like you said, it's bold, it's quick. You know exactly what it means. Yeah. You look at it, boom, it's done. And why newspapers are killing it is just tells you all you need to know about the people who run newspapers. It's crazy. Are newspapers going to die altogether? I think you're going to have some national cartoons. I mean, cartoons, some national newspapers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me. And you're going to have some local websites. And I think we're going to head into, and if I was a corrupt local official, I would be the happiest boy in all the world. <laughs> because 
because they're not being covered. At the Birmingham News, they don't have a dedicated reporter covering the city council. They don't have a dedicated reporter covering the county commission. The mm-hmm. same county mm-hmm. commission that had the biggest bankruptcy in the history of the country. Yeah. But no one's watching these guys. So yeah, this it's, it's a it's going to be a bad it's going to be a bad decade. Spoken by the way by a uh, a consummate political junkie. Well done. I just want to know what the hell you've done in your life because it sounds like there's nothing you haven't done. I I, I went went to Bosnia and you go and the ex ex Yugoslavia from from 1993 through 2012. What took you there? I I was going I was studying with a uh, a local sculptor named Milton Horn who uh, who was who was very close with Frank Lloyd Wright and uh, as a matter of fact I, I was studying with him right up until he passed away in 19, 1994 when when I was in Bosnia by the way he wanted me to to go and study the the classical masters either in in Florence or Paris and. I was so much more about the um, the modern masters, the abstract expressionist Picasso, Dali, Juan Miro, and so I I decided that I was I was going to study in Barcelona. I was going to go. I was going to get an apartment, live in, and study in Barcelona. That's when that's when the war broke out in uh, in Bosnia, in Yugoslavia. And I started hearing stories of artists who were still creating when they had no lights, no running water, no food. They're being shot at and shelled daily. Growing up in a military family, I almost went into the Marine Corps out of, uh, out of ROTC. It just seemed like here was an opportunity, first of all, to view history. Second of all, to be a witness. I, I grew up on Holocaust literature and the, uh, and the never again. And here I see it happening to Bosnia's Muslims. There were all these things that seemed to be drawing me to to Bosnia and Sarajevo in particular. And in my memoir, there's a sketch that I did in 1992 of of a woman leaning against a door with with the war happening outside of her door. At her feet is is a child's coffin. There's a Catholic cross around her neck, but the child, the, the coffin has, has the Islamic uh, crescent star on it. I, I took a picture of, of Anna in the bombed out National Library, and I, I'll be damned if if the two images aren't almost identical. Oh, wow. She's Catholic, and her brother, as I, as I said, his father was was a Muslim. I, 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 hate, I hate to say it was coincidence or fate, but I, I argue with that in the book. What's the name of your memoir? Everything for Love, uh, W.C. Turk. I met a two art professors who lived on Sniper Alley. My, I slept Jeez. overlooking Sniper Alley uh, and the and the Holiday Inn um, in this iconic building in Sarajevo, and uh, and befriended uh, their eleven year old uh, son Suleiman, who was my my passport to the city. Told me what was where it was dangerous, where 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 I should run, where I shouldn't run. Then I was I was moving on. There were other things that were happening. I was going to go to Chechnya, Rwanda. I was I was doing relief work uh, for for Rwanda. So I I was ready to move on. And the family asked me if I could come if I would come back and bring them some things. And I I, I said, it, 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 does it mean that much to you? And they said, yeah. And so I kept that promise. And, and on the return trip is when I met my wife. Wow. Yeah. We knew each other 10 days. We were engaged for two days. 
Oh my uh, God. And, and then uh, I was, I got stuck there. Um, Harry Porterfield and, and uh, John Duncanson um, who were friends did, um, did, did a couple pieces on me, but I got stuck in Sarajevo and um, it, it took me the better part of a, of a month and a half to get out through a, through the through the tunnel that ran underneath the airport so I lost wow me. scott it was such an amazing pleasure to speak this was with fun you. it was, was it really was fun thank it you was a, it was a blast i don't know except for the bathroom break i don't know <laughs> that i'm gonna i'm gonna edit much because i think this was a very substantive conversation oh well, bless your heart thank you Scott Stantis is currently the editorial cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune and creator of the widely syndicated comic strip Prickly City, which can be found at gocomics.com. Scott began his career with the Chicago Tribune in September 2009, following the paper's nine-year search to replace Jeff McNelly, who passed away in June of 2000. He is also the author of Taking Stantis. In a previous episode, I spoke with Mark Vickery about the debut EP from Cosmic Bull, 27 times 2, which is now available at cosmicbull.bandcamp.com. The music for this exemplary collection is written and performed by Mark Vickery, produced and engineered by Scott Tallarita, drums by Kevin O'Donnell, percussion by Neutron Cole, saxophone by Paul Von Mertens, vocals, guitar, bass, and keyboard patches by Mark Vickery, keyboards, effects, bass, guitars by Scott Tallarita. From 27 times 2, this is Cosmic Bull and Joe Namath Moment. What you think about now is now too late. No time to think about it. Don't wait. With a face like yours, we can make a scene for the folks at home on that TV screen. Remember, you should know I used to be Mr. So and So. You say, I ain't got no class Happens to me nowadays Every time I make another pass Always called them like I see them And now they got me in museums You can call me Broadway Everybody knows me a time that no one ever
Say hi to the folks at home. Say hi to the folks at home. Say hi to the folks at home.